Pro Prep Academy, in partnership with the Heroes in Our Midst podcast, bring to you more than an athlete. Embrace your humanity to unlock performance. This podcast aims to help athletes reach their potential in sport and life through learning from each other and sharing stories. Hi, I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop, and in episode number five, as host of the Heroes in Our Midst podcast, I was honored on behalf of Pro Prep Academy to get to sit down and chat with Glenn Bruce. Now, from what I've heard, anyone who actually trains with Glenn gets really fast. In fact, he is known as the speed guru. And if you're a little fuzzy on what level we're talking about here, he's spent the past 20 years working with athletes from the NFL, NHL, CFL, AHL, NCAA, MLS, U-Sport, and more. He's a multi-U-Sports men's national champion. He's coached at the University of Manitoba for 15 years, and that's not all. He's worked with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, Valor FC, Winnipeg Rifles Football Club, and still more. And for Glenn, speed is life. So, how did we get this guy as our guest when he seems to be wanted by everyone? Simple. We asked him to join us, and he's down to earth enough to have said, sure. You see, on top of all of that heady, high-level, one-on-one stuff, he's a gym teacher. That's right. He works as a physical education and health teacher in Winnipeg and has 34 years of experience in this area. Incredible. Now, where do you start with a guy who has so much to offer us? Well, I called him the speed guru, and off we went. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Michelle. It's great to be here. And on behalf of Pro Prep Academy, thank you very much for having us. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. I think we're going to learn in so many ways. And I think lots of us have said we we learn so well by hearing stories. And I know you've got a ton of them. I can't even imagine how many athletes you've worked with in 20 years. But um, and we also want to get your story, sort of where you came from and how you got into this. Um, I guess it all started with the University of Manitoba working with Alex Gardner. I'm going to say he's my, he's my uh, role model and the person that's my go-to person and one that's probably influenced me the most. So I started working at University of Manitoba as a volunteer coach with Alex, and I've stayed there for 15 years. And then after that, I did another five years with uh, the Bison football team. At that point in time, I decided to move on to some, do something different. And I moved on to, uh, I guess what you call the uh, private um, part of training. Um, I, I was still teaching at the, at the same time. I'm going into my 35th year of being a high school teacher. So I really enjoy what I'm doing. Um, so in the years that we were at University of Manitoba, I think it really galvanized the way I do things now and how I think and how I practice. And that is we, we were successful. We had, uh, in nine years, we won seven men's national titles. Not a lot of people know that. Um, we were very, very successful because we had a lot of really dedicated coaches. And it got to be the point where it was more of a cultural thing. And most people, you always hear that. And it kind of sounds kind of like, what is cultural? What does that mean? The best way I can describe it is we're all supportive of each other. And as much track and field can be a very individualized sport, it was more of a team thing for Manitoba. So if a shot putter was throwing, everybody went there. If a middle distance person was running, everybody went there. So there's a lot of camaraderie going on there. And I think the strength in numbers really spoke for itself. Um, And the other thing is losing was just not, after a while, losing was not an option. It was just kind of a weird thing. And you hear other teams saying that, like you're, you know, the Michael Jordan thing and, and, you know, stuff like that. And, but it really wasn't like, we just, we, we didn't, it wasn't even part of our discussion. What there was no such thing as rebuild. It was always like, we're going to do it again. We're going to do it again. And when somebody lost, we just found a way to find ways to be successful. So I think that really galvanized the way I was as an amateur coach. And then as I progressed more into the private sector, and now I'm working, I've worked with NFL players, uh, NHL currently with NHL players, Um, you know, and and so there's a different level there because the expectations are different due to the demands that are different. For example, don't injure my athlete, right? You can't send an athlete to camp being injured. Um, Number two is they have to be healthy. They just have to be healthy all around individuals. And then obviously the thing is they have to perform because at the professional level, unlike the amateur level, you don't perform, you're gone. They're going to find a way to get rid of you, right? It's about winning. So I think a lot of ways that that those 15 years at University of Manitoba has really helped me in, in the way I practice things I do now. So not only pressure 
pressure from the athlete, pressure from the coach, pressure from, you know, the money that's being spent and all of that, man, you've, you know, you put yourself into that position and yet you put yourself in a position to give that athlete such an advantage, right? So are you always one-on-one now with your athletes? Uh, for the most part, yes. But with Pro Prep Academy, we do group, tra- we do a lot of group training. I guess what happens in, in Canada, we try to do the LTAD, which is long-term athlete development program. And a lot of it came from Canada where we developed a lot of things on paper and I was part of that process. So we were ahead of the world, you know, 20 years ago, but then everybody surpassed us. And that's why in some ways, I mean, it's great that women's soccer program has flourished the way it is, but they had, they had their time struggling too. And in the same way that the youth are struggling right now. So the problem that I find right now with the high level performance training is we don't have that cohesion of coaches with psychologists, with nutritionists, with therapists. And, and as you know, Michelle, the way you've, you went through your sport, it's not just one person on an island doing it, right? So that's how I see myself. I'm not an island. I'm more of a, you know, maybe I'm on an island, but I'm connected with all the other islands too. And we're taking our boats back and forth across the islands and visiting each other and having conversations. And that's one thing that I really, really have have taken since I've, I was able to visit a place called Altus in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And that's where Andre DeGrasse did his original training. And they're really big on promoting, you know, if you're a therapist, then you better understand how to be a coach. If you're a coach, then you understand how to be a therapist because it's that whole holistic thing where the athlete has to really be able to farm themselves out, so to speak. It's not a nice word, but be able to use all, all those resources and support services and they become better. So, you know, when you say that I'm on an island or I'm by myself, yeah, there's some one-on-one, but really, and DJ Lalamo is really good about the pro prep thing because he was one of my athletes that said, you know, I'm getting tired of running. Like, who's the best chiropractor in town? Who's the best nutritionist in town? Now I got to see a sports psychologist. Now I got to see a speed guy. Now I see have to see a strength guy. So I'm very transparent about everything I do for coaching. I make sure that I try to educate people and I say, just take this information. If you don't see me five years from now or even a year from now, I'm okay with that because the big thing is for you to get better. So really the the team aspect of everything that we do in life really hits home for you and you can't do what you do alone. And I I love that. So how did you become this uh, sought after coach when you were a kid? Like, were you fast? Like how? (laughs) Yeah, I was actually. (laughs) And it's funny how we anchor childhood (laughs) memories for the rest of our life. And then, you know, I'm getting to be an older guy now and, and I'm one year from retiring from my job, but I still remember my grade five, uh, track and field day where I walked home and I had five red ribbons on my chest. And one of the neighbors said to me, Oh, you had a really good day today. And I'm like, you know, sticking my chest. I'm like, yeah, I did. So that was part of my identity was, was being the fastest kid in the neighborhood and, and, and eventually in the city and whatnot. But I just remember how much gratitude I had and it gave me something to hitch my wagon to, you know, to the star and, and feel successful about um, unfortunately, you know, I had to go through some academic problems, but I decided to pull that up and that, you know, I realized that if you want to use this talent that you have to work on your academic work as well. And, and yeah, so that's basically what happened in, in junior high, I was looking out the window of social studies because I was sitting in the back row, like I always do, where all the good students sit. And, and I saw some, some, some teacher out there with a bunch of guys running. I'm like, how do I get out there? And then social studies teaches as well, Mr. Gardner is uh, working a track club. If you want to get out there, you have to do your work. So my mark went from like a 65 to an 85 in a week. And then, you know, during my class time, I was able to get out there and train with Alex. So, you know, that's how it really all started. And it went forward from there. Okay. So obviously you had some incredible input early on and, and was track and field what you did, or did you play all all the sports? Uh, you know what, being a kid in in the seventies, we, I I was very fortunate. I grew up in, in an area town where we had probably 12 to 14 boys my age within a year. And we would play everything. I mean, we played baseball, we played soccer, we played football, we even golfed. Uh, we just found ways to be outside all the time and playing. So, but as far as organized sports are concerned, I played hockey because every kid played hockey at the time. I ran track and field. I played football. I was, I was fairly successful as a football player, but I didn't play any school sports. I didn't play basketball, didn't play volleyball, but nothing stopped me from, you know, playing intramurals or going to the beach and playing those, you know, playing beach volleyball or playing pickup basketball in someone's backyard. So, you know, we really did everything back then. We didn't specialize the way the the students are doing right now or the athletes are doing now. So, and that's a concern too, because now I have a greater understanding of 
the long-term athlete development. And that's one thing that I'm really trying to work on with the students. Watching some youngsters run today, there's some hockey players and, and then some football players earlier today. I was like, you know what? Why is it that we're not getting faster? Like, why is it that a 12-year-old isn't getting faster than a 12-year-old from 10 years ago? Sure, Andre DeGrasse is faster than somebody else 20, 30 years ago. But why is our youth not getting fitter and faster? And then I started thinking about how they move and, you know, their life. And maybe they're different now. We didn't have the formal training they do. But we also, they don't have the multi-plane and multi-speed movement that we had when we just played, played a sport, right? Mm -hmm. Post-secondary, what happened after high school for you? Did you keep playing sport? Were you still in track? The funny thing is when I was in junior high, Alex then went to a high school called Murdoch McKay Collegiate in Transcona. And that turned out to be my high school too. So I ran track for three years with Alex, 10, 11, 12. And then the year I graduated, Alex took a job at University of Manitoba. And then I graduated and I, I was in phys ed at U of M. And I ran with Alex for two years. Uh, at University of Manitoba as an athlete. And I played football for the St. Thomas things. It was busy. <laughs> no kidding. And, and, and was that was that it? Was that your post-secondary experience? And then bring us from there to your actually becoming a leader in sport. So then what happens after I graduated and I was coaching everything. I coached basketball at my old high school. I coached football for the Transcona Nationals. Did a little bit of track at Murdoch McKay as well. Coached there. And then I moved up north. I decided to just get a job and be a teacher. And I, I worked up north at a place called Lynn Lake, Manitoba, which is the furthest you can drive on road to go, you know, to get to get somewhere. And um, so I did that for two years. Then when I came back, I didn't have a job. So I went to Alex's office at University of Manitoba. And I said, you know what, I'm unemployed. I'm looking for a teaching job, but I need to do something. So he goes, well, do you want to coach with me? And I'm like, sure. So then I became an assistant coach under Alex's uh, tutelage and it was awesome since then because he's been he was very very nurturing with me taught me a lot of things and he really taught me how to work with people not necessarily be a drill master of a coach or a biomechanist which I turned out to be anyway but he really taught I really observed how well he worked with other people and and being with other coaches too like he's just phenomenal so you get into the whole coaching scene and speed is your thing like if I come to you I would say how can I be fast? That seems like the most basic question I can think of for someone like you. Speed is life, is your is your business. <laughs> How can I be faster? I mean, I'm, you know, over 50. So my my, my uh, days might have gone. But when I was playing, when I was an athlete, you know, uh, how, how can one, per how can a person get to be fast? I think the big thing is everybody has a signature movement or a movement signature. Just like you sign your name on a piece of paper, right? And everybody has a different way of the process of the signature being on the paper will look different, but also the way they hold the pen and the way they move the hand across the paper. So that's why when I talk to you about the, playing the piano, you know, it's really interesting how people can play the piano differently, but the sound is the same. Mm -hmm. Or the sound is different and they look like they're playing the piano the same. So there's a lot of things that go on there. And, and I think you have a, everyone has a ceiling like if I, you try to teach me to play the piano, my ceiling would be whatever it is, right? Just like your ceiling for speed would be whatever. But I think the big thing is how do you get to that ceiling and how big is that ceiling? So I'm really big on functional movement screens. I'm not too sure if, if a music teacher would sit the student down and go, just play something. And you would listen to the tone, you listen to the rhythm, you listen to the speed, you listen to cadence, all I mean all those things, right? So when I have a, a client come in front of me and I go, just run. Just run. And I, and I know once, you, you know, once you've seen, like if, if you listen to Mozart and you've seen someone play Mozart at the highest level, that rings in your ears, right? So I've seen Andre de Grasse, trackside, Donovan Bailey, trackside, you know, the fastest athletes in the world. Usain Bolt in Jamaica, I saw him when he was 19, right? Trackside, like two feet away. And you don't forget that. You know, it's like you hear that one note and you go, I get that. You hear their feet, the way they strike. I get that, that body position. I used to watch a lot of video on track and field. Don't anymore because I rely on my eyes for that and my memory for that. It's a Rolodex, right? It's got to flip through all the things, all the past memories. So having said that, what I would do is probably watch somebody move first and then say, okay, let's look at the principles of speed. So what do you need for speed? Well, you need angular velocity. So neuromuscular contraction. So you have to get that, right? Let's train that. Is it trained? Is it untrained? So you have to look at the trainability of an athlete. 
I think that's the big thing when you talk about the ceiling of an athlete, mm-hmm. what's the trainability, right? Um, and then the other thing is obviously you need strength, you need power, you need uh, flexibility, you need coordination. But yeah, so I would actually ask the person, can you run? Show me how you run. And then look at all those different components and try to look at the trainability of each component. Now there's going to be a student in grade nine who's the fastest in the school. And you go, you know what? You're pretty much picked out. You run an 11, 300 meter dash. You set an age group record. That's great. But your trainability is minimal. So I'll coach you. But in my head, I'm thinking, but the last thing you do is ever, you would never tell anybody that, right? That's the last thing you want to do because you're not a dream crusher. You're a dream creator, right? Mm -hmm. Would you say there's a countless number of ways to run, to get from point A to point B, or do you try? And I mean, in certain sports, there are certain skills, right? Your hands need to be a certain way. You catch a ball like this. You hold the bat like generally like this. In running, is there a certain technique that is sort of the basis that you work from? Oh, (laughs) that's a rabbit hole, eh? (laughs) (laughs) You know what? Years ago, I would say, yes, there is. There's a sprint model. But now I'm going to say there's more efficiencies that we work on. And I, I'm going to say yes and no. I'm going to say yes, because you still have to apply a certain amount of force. You still have to displace your body. You still have to have angular velocity, which is a speed of your limbs. Okay. You still have to have that stretch reflex off the ground. You still all need that, but it's how you do it, which is different. So I know I'm talking to a strength conditioning coach for the NFL with the Jaguars. He says, Glenn, we no longer look at the numbers. Everyone can jump 36, 38 inches, right? They look at how they jump. They look at the body language, how they land. They look at the body language before they take off. How do you, so are you a natural gifted athlete that you can just, you know, you've seen it, right? They just get off the ground, pop. Or are you a a prefabbed athlete that you have to, well, I have to hinge at the waist, have to preload and then take off. So they're really looking for athletes that are moving more efficiently as opposed to someone who was taught how to move that way. Interesting. I find this also fascinating because I think more in the old days of sport, it was that here's how we do it. And now who can do it this way best? And that's who makes the team. And that's, you know, I think there's a lot more variety and a lot more willingness to say that athlete is the best that way. Right. So I was at provincial volleyball about five years ago and I was sitting next to a gentleman who's had very, a lot of success at university of Winnipeg with the women's volleyball team. Okay. And I said to him, I said, what are you looking at? Like he's, he's a club coach. He works with students as well, or athletes as well on the side. And I said, what are you looking at when um, people are moving? Do you watch for the ground contact? Do you watch, you know, how the knowledge of the game? And I just kept going on and on. He said, none of that. I said, what do you look for? He goes, this heart. Yeah. Right. And that's basically what he said. He goes, see those two girls over there, best in the province. They're playing against each other today. They don't have it. I'm like, really? I go, look how they're dominating. He goes, they don't have it. Interesting, right? So, you know, you can look at all the biomechanics you want. You can look at all the metrics and the numbers and everything. But how do we do a heart check? How does that work? <laughs> what are we yeah. looking for? But but what I'm saying is you played at a very high level and you know what it's like to feel that way, mm-hmm. right? I, I know what it's like to coach, but I've never played at that level. So what is it like as an athlete to, to be like that? Like what drives what drives people? Everybody has their own demons. I call them demons. That's what I call them. I go, everyone has demons and you have to harness those demons. It's, it's not a bad thing, but it's those things that when you wake up, you get very questionable about your abilities. So you have to go out and prove yourself. Mm-hmm. And I find that athletes that are very, you know, they say, be humble. I kind of have a problem with that sometimes because I'm like, I'm not too sure what that means. They say, well, you have to be appreciative of what you have. And I go, okay, does it ever stop? Like, do you ever, do you ever just stop and say, I'm, 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 hu- I'm humble. I'm, I don't have to do anything tomorrow. No, you should be hungry. Use the other H word. You're hungry. You got to be able to go work harder. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I've seen you play. I've seen other people play on your team and, and they're like that. They're just naturally just go, 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 go. And then the biggest downfall is when you pull the plug on that, what do you replace with that? Right. Right. But for you, it was an easy transition because you are, you obviously went from one very similar, what we just talked about. Yeah. And that hunger is hard to explain. And I think as coaches, this discussion we're having right now, coaches would love to know. And when you, especially when you're, you're coaching, I know you're coaching sort of individuals, but like you talked about earlier, you, you know, it's in a team con 
context almost always, no matter what the sport is, uh, no matter what you're doing in life. I think any coach would love if we could figure out, if you could figure out at the beginning of the season, what exactly works for every one of your players, just like easily. I mean, that's a season long, maybe a lifelong quest. If you're working with an athlete, do you have a, maybe an example, a high level athlete that, that you worked with for a long period of time and it, and it took a while to figure him or her out, or maybe an example of someone who you saw and you went, I know how to work with this, with this kid. Yeah. You know what? I think the big thing is having a constant pathway as the athlete. So right, right, right away, I think of um, Montreal, former Montreal Canadian Del Weiss, who I met about uh, seven years ago at Elite Performance. And we're still friends today, but I'm also still his coach. So there's a fine line between being friends and a coach, right? So I'm kind of careful about, and so is he about letting his guard down. And what I mean by that is he wants me to be his coach. So I have to play the role as a coach. But there's times where, you know, those 3 a.m. phone calls or 3 a.m. texts where if he had a bad performance or even if he had a good performance, he needs to express that. Right. And we're all human beings. So there's going to be reasons. Like I always ask people, okay, how was your day today? Great. How was your performance today? Great. Why? And they literally stop in their feet. But they had a bad day or they had a bad race or a bad competition. They could give me five things right away. Okay. So tell me the good things. And let's rehearse that and do it all over again. And I, and I find that's the nature of humans. Like, you know, turn on the news. It's always um, individual failures. Let's, let's have a success story. You know, can we not have a news channel just this all success? I don't know. Maybe no, nobody's interested in that, right? <laughs> but as a coach, we're seeking that all the time, constant, right? Next performance, next performance, next performance. So for Dale, you know, he's, he's done his NHL Uh, career he's over in Sweden right now he has a game in three days and it was hard for him to realize that this is coming to an end he's 33 years old now it's coming to an end and then I see another person like a Keegan Colesar from Winnipeg who I've known since he was 12 okay and it's kind of gone the opposite so he's on the upswing of his career right so I think the big thing is maintaining positivity and looking for small successes for both of them all the time and always having little goals throughout the week, right? So that's what, that's what athletes want. They're, they're, most of them are type A, I'm going to say, if you want to type them. Most of them like work. And most of them just want to continue with being competitive. That competitive nature is something that I, it's natural, but you have to bring it out of people too, mm-hmm. right? So I, I've changed some of my style of coaching when it's in a group setting to be more competitive. And I say the word competitive. Be competitive. Challenge the person next to you. And I know the Winnipeg Football Club this year, who I also work with, they started um, having this, the uh, veterans start talking to the rookies and the new people to the, to the Canadian Football League to say, hey, this is what you need to do to get better. Or, hey, good job. Rather than one coach singularly telling them. Because now it's a full buy-in system. Right? So, and athletes like that. They want to be challenged. Otherwise, they would not be in sport. Right. There's no sense in going into sport if there's not a winner and a loser. If everyone was just no, the same and we didn't have keep score, those people would go elsewhere. And I, I like that. I want to grab that just a thought, that thought about evaluating your day on the good. That's yeah. it's, that's huge to maintain that positive look forward, be challenged again to see the challenges as positive and what was great about today. I'm going to think about that as we go forward. You've worked with so many high-level athletes in all these different sports. I'm curious. In, I know you work on speed, and I know that's relevant to so many sports. But um, have you noticed like any similar characteristics of some of the yes. high-level athletes that you've coached? Yes. Yeah. Like what? Um, they're a different species. Hmm. You know, um, I have yet to see a fat cheetah, and <laughs> cheetahs like to run fast. And I have yet to see a skinny elephant and elephants, they run fairly fast, but not as fast as a cheetah. So there's de- definitely a body type sometimes, sometimes, but more importantly, there's a temperament value of each individual that can carry over. So when you hear people say I'm impatient, sometimes they're impatient people. Um, they are patient because they, they know what it's like to become better in the longer, longer period of time. 
Mm -hmm. um, they like to exert a lot of energy instantaneously. And it's interesting watching the relays at the Olympics this year. And I, and I watched the body language of the athletes, 5,000, 10,000 meter athletes, so much more different than the sprinters, right? Because the sprinters, they're going to be, well, and they're calm too. The 10,000 meter runners are calm too, but they're vol volatile people. You know, so when I worked with the Olympic team and worked with the, the four by four and the four by one team, they say half the challenge is getting people to the practice at the same time. And that is half the challenge. Okay. Because there's personalities, there's issues, there's drama and they're, I don't want to say high maintenance, but they're not the easiest throwers. Hey, they're going to go together, have a beer and hang out sprinters. They're going to find a way to dislike the people that are even on their team. They're just like that. I, 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 I maybe I'm smearing. I don't want to smear or anything, but they're very, very volatile people. And when they want something, they want it now. So there's, there's that instantaneous energy about them, you know, and, and, and when they're done, they're done. So it's the same thing, the way they race, right? They boom, 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 done. Okay. Why would I want to go for a 20 minute run when I can sprint from here to there in six seconds? Okay. So is that, that mentality. Now you are a lifelong teacher, right? At a high school and you've done high school sports and you've done uh, obviously the highest level you've talked to NFL. You've I've heard NFL today. I've heard NHL. I mean, this is the best of the best in the entire world. Um, is your approach to coaching and or teaching the same for all of it? And how would you describe your approach to that? Well, good question. Um, I'm going to say it's probably the same. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have to understand the individual first. Like, so when I walk into a classroom, the first day of school in September, I just stand there and I just look at people and I'm not, I'm, a, I'm one of those people who is horrible for names. Absolutely horrible. Like kids, Mr. Bruce, remember my name? No, but I remember you had a Hershey chocolate bar front row and you're smearing it on your fingers and licking it with your left hand or whatever it is. Right. And so the behavior aspects of humans is astonishing for me. <clears throat> I'm one of those people, sorry, but I can sit in an airport, and watch people all day. Yeah. I watch their gait. I watch which hand they're, gra they're grabbing their luggage with. I'm watching if they're in a hurry, where their toe off is in the backside of their mechanics, their posture. I just find human beings were so different, right? So when I coach, I think the big thing is identifying individualization first. And I'll walk the back hallways. I'm not a person to sit in my classroom during my spare. I'll go walk the hallways because I know it's like, it's like the airport. We got 1,200 <laughs> people at Grand Park. I just walk the hallways and meet anybody, right? grade seven to grade 12. And so when I see a kid, for example, or a student, and I'm not pointing them out, but for example, the person's in the back, in the back hallway, which we call the smoke, we used to call the smokers hallway. And they're wearing, <laughs> you know, the, the, the leather stuff, whatever. And they've got the red hair. I'm going to stop and talk to them because they have an identity. They're, they're saying, this is me. And I'm like, cool. How are you doing? What are you doing back here? All right. Have a nice day. I'll see you tomorrow. Cause I know they're going to be there at the same time tomorrow. Right. And eventually it's a relationship thing. And I find that building relationships builds trust. And then the other thing is understanding. And again, the, the big thing for me is I don't teach drills. I, treat, I teach principles. So this morning I had some hockey players and we need to work on ground reaction time. So I brought the hurdles out, put the hurdles down. Okay, we're hopping over hurdles today. Okay, and of course, being a former hurdle coach, I can come up with, 20 drills within 10 minutes easily right so the parents are like what are we doing hurdles for this is hockey i'm like well they have to be able to get off the ground with their feet apply force on the ground change direction there's eccentric forces happening here like cool yeah okay but if you drove by and saw these hockey players hopping over hurdles going what's that guy doing like why are they doing that so you really have to understand people first and then principles that are that are driving those people so i'll go on instagram and I'm an Instagram person. People are like, oh, I can't keep up with you. But I'm trying to post stuff that I want people to understand. I'm not promoting, oh, this is a new fancy drill. So I'll say, today we did this in speed, and this is why we did it. Right? So it's principle. It's people first, then principles, and then the sport. Love that. That's so nice and clear. Uh, let's talk a little bit about COVID. Were you able to notice... Uh, shift in your athletes, maybe their mentality throughout the COVID pandemic, things stopped. We talked about, we just talked about before competition. It's important and, and, and high level athletes, they get driven by that. And you go from one competition to the next. 
uh, COVID stopped all that. Did you notice a shift in your athletes? Huge. Yeah. Huge. And what some of them did, uh, and I'm going to talk about my running rhinos, Adam Big Hill and Brady Oliveira, who I had for uh, just before um, pre-COVID, probably about three months before. And we're all gung-ho and we're training and we're getting involved. So we kind of went through it. It's like someone said, it's like, you know, kind of dating someone and then say, yeah, we're going to show up at, at this place in time. And then they don't show up <laughs> and then you get stood up. Right. So you keep training, you know, you get ready for the big date and then nope, not there. Then you go back. Okay. Go home, get ready next day and not there. So in a lot of ways they had to do with the ups and downs and you can see it over the last two years where it got to the point where they're like, you know what, if there's no season this year, I'm, pl- I'm, I'm pulling the plug. We had so many, I've had so many Canadian athletes come and see me. They're Canadian football league athletes. They're saying, if we don't have a season this year, I think I'm done. So what they're doing is they're channeling their energy into the business world. And, and you know what, to be a bit, to survive in the business world and to survive properly, you have to play like, like an athlete, mm-hmm. right? You have to have the same attributes. You have to be cooperative. You have to work well with others, but you have to be competitive as well. I mean, for, for Brady, who, who injured himself, he broke his leg first game of the year in his first season, right? Then crutches, they win the great cup. Then he comes back. He's like, okay, I'm ready to come back. We literally trained in, in a hockey rink, you know, during the winter time, because his, his goal was, I need to play, mm-hmm. right? I, I want to play. I want to play at this level. So we kept doing that. And then all of a sudden it started, someone's going, no, you're not doing that. No, you're not doing that. So it got to be where he's like, what, why am I here? Like, I just have no, I have no purpose. And athletes need purpose. They need purpose daily. They need it uh, even during their reps and practice. And they need it in life in general as well. You know, purpose, you're done. You're, you're, you're wiped out. So how did you help someone like him through it? I mean, we had that first bomber game and he was like incredible. So obviously he is playing (laughs) and he's playing well. Uh, do, do you, were you a part, obviously you were a part of that. You were working with him. What did you see that let's use him as an example. What did you see if he's at that point where he's like, why am I doing this? Where, what was his, why, how did he find it? I learned this from Alex Gardner and he would stand there and just randomly look at me in the middle of January when it's cold out, when we're inside of Max Bell and he'd go, so what do you think the East Germans are doing today? He'd say that all the time. Yeah. I wonder what the Russians are doing today. And so you have to think more in a global, global scale of things like, we, Winnipeg is such a small bubble of, of sports. I mean, we do very well for, for the numbers we have. But so I look at Brady, and I go, yeah, because so-and-so is taking the time off too, right? <laughs> and, and then so when you go global like that, it's universal. Then you start latching on to other people's success, right? You watch other people. I think Instagram is really good that way in a sense that you can kind of follow people that way. It also destroys people because you get too much involved with other people's success is not their own, mm-hmm. right? So I think with Brady, the big thing is having those conversations. How are you doing today? What did you do today? What are you doing after the workout? What do you, what's going on after your workout? Like how many coaches ask, ask athletes that, right? So on the way out, I'm like, so what are you doing now? He'd kind of look at me like, uh, do you care? <laughs> Not that he would say that, but you could see the look in his eyes like, wow, this, this, this person actually has an interest in my life. Well, we have to. You know that, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the big thing for Brady is um, he was capable of, almost living in that fantasy land. It's almost like when you plan going on a trip, you, you can visualize yourself being there already. So you're saving your money, you're doing your diligent work, you're doing what you need to do. So that when you get there, you go, wow, I'm, I'm living my dream. So for Brady, literally, and, and you know, people are like, oh, you must be ec- ecstatic. I'm like, no, no, I, I actually expected that. Nobody else did. I expected that because I saw it in practices for two years. Working with Andrew Harris before that, I knew it had to be done. Right. So Brady showed flashes, constant flashes of what needed to be done to get to that level before he got there. Just like Ben Johnson broke the world record before he broke it, broke the world record in practice with Charlie Francis before he actually stepped on the track at Seoul. Right. Drugs or no drugs. He still broke the record. I don't care. But, you know, the point being is he already did it. It's like you playing the piano. Right. Do it and then just repeat it over and over again. So that's exactly what Brady did. He almost lived like a fantasy land where he can envision that first game running out of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then he did it. It's like, okay, I've been here before. I've practiced this in my head. This is nothing new to me. You know, and by Alex saying that, like, well, I wonder what they're doing. You create competition right there. All yeah. I know is yeah. I'm not going to let them do more than me. Right. Yeah. 
And there and you Ken go. Bentley is a good, Ken Bentley's a good friend. Well, not a great friend of mine, but he grew up in Transcona too, went to Murdoch <laughs> McKay as well. So I know him quite well. And so when we have conversations, it's almost like a, a Tim Robbins three hour marathon. And I only hear him say like three sentences and I walk away. I'm going, okay, I got something to think about for the rest of the day. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're coaching like that, you, you have very similarities in what you need to say. And all he needs, all I need to do is ask him one question. And I know Ken or Alex or Bruce Perney, whoever it was at the time will give me exactly what I, or, or not give me, but will say something that I could use. Absolutely. Something you can take and make your own. Hey, if you yeah. could give young athletes one piece of advice as they continue in their sport journey, what would it be? Dream and dream bigger than what you ever think your dreams would be. That is so important. And I, and I say that we, we do a lot of mental health at my school. Uh, what I mean by that is we, we are a health program from grades nine to grade 12, even grade seven, I should say, grade seven to grade 12 for our health program. We talk about mental health. And I'm finding that my own take on it is I don't think the youth are dreaming as big as they should because with social media, it kind of narrows that gap. It kind of brings things down like you don't have a nice house, but I do. So you're never going to get that if, if that's your goal, for example, right? Um, there's one student or there's one person on um, Instagram right now. He claims to be the fastest, youngest person on earth. And he's probably in grade five or grade six. I'm like, okay, you're fast. That's great that you do that. But what happens when someone beats you, right? So, but, but the worst part is someone sees us and they're going, I'm not fast. This guy's, this guy's self-claiming is the fastest human being for a grade five student. Well, then I'm not fast. Whereas before with no social media, we had no bar to compare ourselves with. So yeah, when I said I wanted to be an astronaut in grade three, what did I know about being an astronaut, right? Grade seven hit rock bottom because my math sucked. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're not going to the moon right now because you never come back. But that's the point I'm trying to make with the students is set your goals here, but dream bigger, better, huge. Just don't stop dreaming. I had a friend in his report card, I'll never forget, in grade seven, it said, so-and-so dreams too much, daydreams too much in class. And I'm, I'm almost wanting to write that in my report card for another student say, so-and-so does not do enough daydreaming. They need to stop and just reflect. And that's a big thing with, with, with phones now is people don't have a time to sit down and reflect. It's always, what's the next minute? What's the next minute? Sit down, reflect on what's going on and say, okay, that's where I am. That's where I went. Where am I going to go? And I always tell my exiting grade 12s, if you want to go Himalaya mountains, if you want to go hang out at a beach in California, go do it. If that's what you really want. As long as you're not harming anybody or breaking the law, do it. Set your goals super, super high. So I think that's what I need to, that's what I tell people, set your goals really high and then be disciplined because I was very disciplined when I was, when I was with Alex in high school. And so, you know, during my spare, I'd go run Hills. He'd give me a workout to do because I wanted to be the best that I could be. And I, and I think sometimes people misunderstand the, the, the dreaming part and the actual reality part is the practice part. Mm -hmm. So now you have to go practice what you want to do. If you want to go drive a red sports car, then start shopping for red sports cars. Don't be hanging out in the truck section, right? <laughs> like really, there has to be a practicality about that. So when I have students tell me, oh, I want to be an actor. Okay, get out of here. Well, what do you mean? Go to California, go to New York. You know, and our most successful student from Grand Park is on Broadway right now because that's exactly what he did. He did two years of whatever drama somewhere else, went straight to New York, starved himself, but he's living in New York, hung out with people that know about drama and, and whatnot, the productions, and he's in one of the biggest productions in, on Broadway. Very successful. Well, and he learned about those productions at that level, right? Yes. And he had yeah. the nerve and the courage to go and, and, you know, when we say dream too, you have to have the courage to dream and put it out there and to say, yeah. you know, some of our Olympic athletes said, I'm going to win a gold medal. And some of them didn't, but they said it and they gave themselves the opportunity. Yeah. So when you follow the most Olympic athletes, they all have a story where they said, I wanted to be an Olympian since I was five or six or 12. And I dreamt about this day for the, my entire life. Okay. But so did other people that didn't get there. Right. But the great thing is then you're always working towards something and putting in the work is never something that's lost, right? You'll find your reality along the way. But if you aren't ever willing to dream and give everything you have, maybe, you know, things just keep not happening and you wonder, 
you know, you wonder why. Well, you're answering the question right there. So when Vancouver hosted the last Winter Olympics, the summer before that, we had nationals, national track and field championships in Calgary. And they had this gala, they called an Olympic gala. So I went and I met the person who was hosting it, who owned the largest airline in Australia. I can't remember the name of the company, but I'm, I, I, I said to him, I go, what are you doing here? Like, what's going on? He goes, see that person over there? And he, he pointed to one of our top sprinters. He goes, that person there understands hard work. They know how to be diligent. They know how to do things at the highest level. They're healthy. They even look healthy. And he said, they, they probably work well with others. He goes, so I'm here to headhunt. I'm here to hire people for my company. And I went, what a great idea. And that's basically what he did is he went from country to country, hosted an Olympic gala, Olympia gala, whatever. And he just handpicked and spoke to people because he said, you know what, Glenn, if they do this for free, can you imagine if I paid them, what kind of work they do if I paid them? So all those principles that we teach people in sport, I tell kids all the time, this is going to help you for employability skills later on in life, like big time. Awesome. Now, what about our parents? Glenn, parents have changed. Hey, they're more involved. They're all a part of what all's going on with their kids. If you could give parents one piece of advice as they navigate uh, the athletics world or sport world, what would that be? Let your child to choose a second sport for fun. Let them choose a sport that they can just enjoy um, where there's no pressure and that gets their mind off the other sport. And uh, one student that I had do that with, or actually many, many students they do that with at Grand Park. If they're a top athlete, go, go play another sport. Chantelle Grant was a really good sprinter in high school. And she's a mother of three right now, I believe. But I said, go play basketball. Just why would I do that? I go to have fun because otherwise you get so focused in, in unison in that one sport. And if it doesn't work out for you one day, then you put so much pressure on yourself, you want to quit. So number one thing is let them play another sport just for fun. Okay. I think the second thing is um, parents have changed in the last five years. This new generation of parents are different than the parents 10 years ago, where 10, 15 years ago, it was all in or nothing, right? You still see that right now, but I think parents are more understanding that, you know what, if they don't get that sign that contract, don't get drafted, then we're going to try to get an education out of this. And I'm finding they're being more holistic that way and more understanding. That's awesome. Hey, um, how do you navigate failure with your athletes when you're coaching? Well, I do what a lot of other coaches do. I give them a 24 hour rule and I'll even text people after a game, after performance, like, you know, guys in the NHL and stuff. And I go, you have 24 hours and they know exactly what that means. But we've discussed that beforehand. You have 24 hours to feel sorry for yourself, to be angry, but the next morning you get up, you, you reset that button, right? And one thing I used to always tell Andrew Harris is chop wood, carry water, right? Before the enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. You're still doing the same thing. So the success doesn't really become in the performance. The success becomes in the process. So, you know, people say right now, trust the process. Well, practice the process and then you'll trust it. You, don't, you can't just say, I trust it. You have to practice it. Then it'll naturally come with the trust part. And then I think the, the big thing is it's more process driven. And then the performances will take care of themselves. Now we talked about navigating maybe a negative, but just you just mentioned, you've mentioned Andrew Harris a few times, his incredible performance in the Grey Cup and what a great season. How do you navigate that with an athlete? Because I think that's important for coaches too. Uh, you talk about, you know, the repeat championships are so hard, that kind of thing. Once you've had success, where do you go with an athlete next? Chop wood, carry water. I'm serious. I love that you, <laughs> you have said one that. day to celebrate. And then next day you're getting that pail, you're filling up with water and you're chopping that wood. And that's how they think what's the next, next chapter. And, and the thing is, I really dislike this when I see a championship team win a championship. Then the next day, the media is asking the coach if he's leaving or she's leaving. And I, I don't like that because there has to be a time where they need to just celebrate and just let it sink in. But the reality is the athletes or the coaches or whoever is involved in that success is again, go to bed, get up, reset. What's the next. And that's what Michael Jordan talks about that, that continued sustainable success and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who I really loved when I, when I was growing up and stuff, because he's so positive. He says, it's so easy to be at the top. I fought so hard at the bottom of the hill, but now I'm at the top. I can see everything. And I I've already gotten there. So 
I think of that when I coached at University of Manitoba when we had seven national titles in nine years. It was just easy. And then the worst part is when we started to lose, and I don't not make losing, but we weren't getting the points and winning championships. It's like, okay, how do we get back out of this? And that's the real hard part. You know, it's that, that post hangover from a great cup or a Stanley cup championship, whatever. Right. So I think that's more of a challenge than staying on top. Once you stay on top, you know how to stay there. So you just keep practicing what you're doing. You're chopping wood, carrying water a different way. You're being smarter about it. You're not, you're not burning more energy. You're saving energy, right? You're building that energy. Yeah. Love that. Love that. What do you love most about coaching? What brings you joy in coaching? Uh, I think the big thing is the individualism of everybody, how they bring, they bring their own personality to it. And I like to laugh and I like to, I, I don't laugh at people, but I like it when they say something and, or they do something and we just kind of have this understanding. We just kind of look at each other and we laugh. <laughs> I think people, I enjoy being with people. And it's funny because when I'm away from the track, I don't really want to be around people so much. <laughs> it sounds strange. Cause I'm like, well, I have no interest in you. So don't talk to me. Don't ask me about the weather, but you know, if you want to run fast, we can have a chit chat and go for a coffee for half an hour. Kind of like you and I, right. We've never discussed anything before in our lives, but <laughs> I could probably talk to you for another 10 hours because we're talking yeah. about sports, right? Absolutely. So the people and the, the different type of people we have, like, like I said, a draft is a draft. Humans are so different. And I love the fact that, you know, you're from this background, you're from this background, you're from this country, you're from another country, you have this type of family, uh, your personality is different. I really, really enjoy the, the, the variation, the diversity of, of what sport does. So cool. What would you say is the most difficult thing about being a coach? At my age now, the physical energy. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I had the energy when I was 20, but I also wish I had the knowledge that I have now when I was 20, right? I mean, there's a trade-off, right? So I think the big thing is, is having that physical energy, getting out there, doing it and, and giving energy to people, right? It's not necessarily, okay, go do this ladder drill. It's like, we're doing this ladder drill because, and do you see the value in this? All right, let's go, come on, let's go, right? And then people wanna be enthusiastic about that. They love that, right? Where else in the world are you gonna get that enthusiasm? Yeah. You're not gonna get it when you go to the grocery store. <laughs> You know, you're not going to get it home. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, <laughs> you don't get that. <laughs> so it's, I'll be honest with you. It's kind of a drug. You know, you get that adrenaline going and it's like, and, and Clara Hughes talks about that, right? Where she had sports in her. And I taught Clara Hughes in high school at Elmwood High School. I didn't know what kind of person she was. So, you know, she went through a tough time because she's so successful and she's a very positive person. But when that drops off, then what? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's a direction that I'm thinking about going when I retire from coaching is being a life coach for Olympic athletes or professional coaches or, or professional athletes is saying, okay, you got a year left. What are you doing? Let's, let's go for coffee. Let's go sit down. Let's talk about stuff and, and try to channel what you had as that life force as an athlete into the real world. And I think that's, that is a forgotten and that's a huge issue with mental health with with athletes because they are literally dropping off the face of the earth yeah and that's yeah sad. and that's sad and I, I love that to think about that even a year before they're done right to prepare we prepared for our sport all our lives and now we're not preparing for the next game we're going to play because we're going to play another game and we want to win at it we're going to want to win at it because that's what we yeah. are that's what we are sort of channeled to do or sort of, you know, that's in our DNA. Um, so it is not lost on me, Glenn, that you have had a full-time job and done all this coaching we're talking about on the side. Um, first of all, some people might say, how have you done this at all, physically even, been in all these places and done all this stuff and and really carried all this passion inside and shared it with your athletes. But what are some things that you do to prevent burnout and stay mentally well yourself? You're so busy taking care of everybody else. What do you do as a coach to take care of you? Good question. I think I learned from Dan Paff, who's a former or he's an Olympic track and field coach down in the States. And he said, I learned to take time off when my athletes take time off. Mm-hmm. And I used to be the other way around. So we would go through, you know, September practices for University of Manitoba, 
all the way to March where we had, you know, uh, youth sports championships that I'd get a week off and we would start for outdoors. And during that week off, I'd be preloading, reading books. I would teach a course for Athletics Manitoba or Athletics Canada. And I'd just engage, engage, engage. And it got to the point where um, my engagement, my focus was, it's hard to say, it was distracted. It wasn't as zeroed in the way it should be. It wasn't locked in tight. So then I, I heard Dan Pfaff say that, say that. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to start doing that. And the other thing I learned, interesting enough, is going down to Florida one time and we went down there for a holiday and this person tried to sell us timeshares, right? And the lady looked at us and she says, why can't you commit to a holiday? Like, why can't you just do that? And it really hit me home. I'm like, you don't judge me. You know, who are you? I'm, I'm driven. And I'm thinking, you're right. And I had a friend at work. He said, you know what? The big thing is you have to plan to have fun. It's, it's work to have fun, right? So um, I'm, very, I'm very blessed right now to be with somebody who likes to have fun and likes to go on trips. And we make sure every year that we, we try to do a trip other than COVID years, right? And so I find that a vacation mm. has to be a vacation from my head. It has to be, and for me, it has to be a physical location because if I'm here, I'm still going to get up at 5 a.m. I'm still going to go online and read articles. I'm still going to program plan. I'm still, still going to talk to my athletes. I'm still going to go to practices. I'm still going to watch their performances on TV and give them the valuation after the game. I'm still going to stay up to one o'clock on a school day waiting for them to board the plane so they can talk to me, right? But if I physically remove myself and I find that with most people for mental health, you physically take yourself out of that situation, then your mind can escape a little bit. And then you let the things come down, you recharge, you come back. So that's one thing I've done is designated vacation time. I haven't had any time off since school's ended. And I said to myself, last two weeks of August, I need just to have family time, downtime, get away from sport. Great advice. And I think that really helps some of us who are, some, some coaches who are so driven, I think you're right. Plan it, it's important enough. So make yeah. if, if you're planning your season's important enough, planning your time is important enough. Glenn, uh, there's been so much here. There's been so much that people can grab from this conversation. And thank you for pouring thank yourself, you. pouring yourself into Manitobans <laughs> and beyond and beyond. Oh my word. All your students. Are you actually retiring soon? You said you might. This is my last year of teaching. Yes. And then look out sport world. Glenn's going to get even busier. Well, I don't know about that. Maybe more productive. We'll see. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> awesome. Do you know what I like too is you've mentioned some of these names. You're like, no way. You coach that guy. No way. No way. I thought Mike O'Shea was Andrew Harris's coach, right? That's what some people might be thinking. It's yeah. like, okay, no, 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 no. Now understand what happens, right? With the high level athlete, how many people have their hands into what this success is. And I know a lot of high performance athletes understand that and thank a lot of those people along the way. That whole takes a village that, that pertains to so many things. You know what? I want to say one thing before I go and that is this. I always, now lately in the last three years, I've tell the athletes, you own the key to the kingdom. They have to own the key to the kingdom. They have to. And the sky's the limit. Keep dreaming. Glenn Bruce said it. Keep dreaming and don't dream small. (laughs) Dream big. There's a lot more to to life than just what's right in front of you and uh, anything's possible. Glenn, you've made a lot of things possible for a lot of young athletes and I know they're very thankful and I know that uh, you're humble about it, but you are certainly a hero in our midst. So thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. That's Glenn Bruce, also known as the speed guru and proud to be a part of Pro Prep Academy. Glenn, thanks for your straightforward approach to excellence. Thanks for inspiring us to dream bigger than what we even think our dreams should be.